is Jeffrey Madoff, and welcome to our podcast called Anything and Everything with my partner, Dan Sullivan. I so often hear the phrase, you know, I want to create value. And, you know, that's kind of an entrepreneur's mantra. I'm creating value. Mm -hmm. But I think what they're really doing, first of all, is creating the value for themselves, which is the pursuit Mm -hmm. of whatever that is. And that they aren't that altruistic. (laughs) You know, there's a satisfaction that they're getting beyond money. And we're talking now about those emotional things that are beyond money or separate from money. Mm -hmm. You know, whether they're trying to prove themselves to a parent or who knows. But there's a lot of things that feed into that. And so as I've been around more entrepreneurial groups and at these conferences and so on, and I hear everybody's mantra being, I want to provide value. I want to create value for other people. I'm thinking, eh, that's down the list. First of all, what I think you want to do is create a situation, circumstance, and ecosystem for yourself mm-hmm. so that you can have a platform of sorts doesn't mean to espouse beliefs. It means to consume your activity and angst and everything else. Does that resonate at all? Well, the other thing is quite a bit from where it ends, you can come back to the beginning. And I think that there is a difference in entrepreneurs from other people. My sense is that it starts early and way earlier than your late teens or your 20s. I think it starts at childhood stage. Mm-hmm. And it's the, I think it has to do with being different, that you actually strive to be different, where a lot of kids strive to fit in, they strive to belong. I think the person who generally 20 years later will become an entrepreneur actually has a real zest for doing things differently, being different, being seen as different. You know, it's interesting because one of the first questions I ask the guests in my class is, if we would have known you as a child, would we see any indication of what it is you're doing now? And most of them say, yes, there are those, not an insignificant number, but I would say maybe 20%, if that, say, no, nobody would have ever guessed this path. And I have friends like that good friend of mine, Tom Gimpetro, who became very successful in high school education in California. And he went to junior college. He was not a good student. And we saw each other at our 50th reunion. And we had talked before, you know, he was principal of the year. He had been teacher of the year. He had all these great accomplishments. You have never even pegged him for going to college. But somebody believed in him. The person that sponsored him into college and onto the football team, he was a good football player. Tom felt finally a sense of purpose that he didn't have before. And he felt something that could give him confidence in himself and ability to perform. And, you know, that happened early in life. I'm not going back to the earliest, like what you're talking about. I want to get to that. But what was quite fascinating is we all the time here find your passion, but I don't think you can find your passion. I think you have to discover it and it develops over time. You know, I said to him, Tom, you know, if I'd have listed the 500 people from our high school that would have gone on to a successful academic career, you would not be on that list. And he cracked up Mm -hmm. and he said, I wouldn't put myself on the list either. But there was a shift that Mm -hmm. happened. And that shift was 
that shift was really interesting. That shift was finally somebody believed in him. Mm -hmm. It was in a sense, almost gave him permission and validated that he could do more than he has done. Yeah. His parents were immigrants and he did not get that sense of accomplishment from home and always felt kind of diminished. And then he finally excelled. That was very interesting to me because it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, trying to prove something to somebody. Well, what about yourself? Because I may be completely wrong here, but I can easily picture you as a six-year-old. Yeah, my hair was darker and I had more. My feeling is that if I saw a six-year-old Jeff and looked at him and, you know, had a chance to you know, just watch you in action for hours, playing with other people, doing work and uh, everything. My sense is that you could very easily see what it looks like 60 years later, 65 years later. You know, same with me. I mean, I, I feel right now at 77, very, very close to who I was at seven. Well, I often say that I have aged, but not matured. <laughs> and... I think that you're right, you know, and one of the reasons that I asked that question of my guests is because I thought back about myself. You know, I had a movie theater in my basement when I was 10 years old. I used to draw the posters, print them out. Remember little printing presses where you put the little rubber letters in those little metal trays and put it on and you crank them out. And I'd put them up around the neighborhood. I'd rent films. I would go downtown Akron, which a lot of parents didn't let their kids do because you could get candy bars instead of five cents a piece they were like two or three for five cents my dad would get these drums of popcorn so there was no overhead on that refreshment you know <laughs> and get sandwich bags and that but you know i put together a movie theater and i would create soundtracks because they were all eight millimeter and there wasn't sound so i created soundtracks and used my sister's stereo and found records and sound effects and i would tape record them and then sync it up with the movie so I was doing the things that 20 years later I would make a living at. Mm -hmm. But I always had something going on. Yeah. So I think that you are correct that I had a certain kind of ambition. I do think that, you know, I saw that behavior in my parents. They were both entrepreneurs, as is my sister, mm -hmm. you know, that she owns her own business. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right. If you did look back, my behavior wouldn't be alien now to, God, I can't believe yeah. you turned out that way. I think you're correct. I come down to the name of your book is Creative Careers. And it seems to me that the purpose for going in that direction, because very few people actually do, you know, and I've been around entrepreneurism since the early 70s. And the percentage of people who qualified for being called entrepreneurs in 1974 is no different than the percentage of people today population's a lot bigger, so you see more of them, but it's just that the population is much bigger and they're quantitatively bigger, but as a percentage, they're not bigger. And I think the reason why a lot of people say they want to be entrepreneurs and others stick with it until they actually do become an entrepreneur has to do with you have a passion for freedom. My whole attitude is that the correct starting point for any entrepreneurial career is an unusually greater and unusually unique passion for personal freedom. Interesting. 
would you say another way of stating that is I want to do what I want? Well, for example, the other 10 year olds in your school near Akron weren't doing that. Mm -hmm. They were going to a movie theater and paying it. They actually came to your movie theater and paid you. Okay. And they'd be happy with that experience. You know, mine wasn't along those lines, but I, you know, I figured out how to make extra cash at a very early age. You know, I had a real nose for being useful. You know, you could be around adults. And one of the things I noticed, and this goes back very, very early in my life, that adults didn't have it all together. And that being an adult was very complicated business. I once said to my father, I was around 14 or so, that had a very close relationship with my dad. And I said, dad, you know, it seems to me that adults are just fucked up older kids. And he laughed and said, you're right. <laughs> and I think that, you know, so many people, we see them no matter what age, they're basically acting out from whatever the formative experiences were when they were younger. You know, some are able to mask it better as they get older, mm. but it is basically acting out. So I, I think that who we fundamentally are in most cases doesn't change past a certain point. Yeah. Newborn babies, they're just full of brain cells and synapses. You know, it's in the trillions, the possible combinations. But by seven or eight, they've lost half of it. They've already gone in a particular direction, and it's like a spring coming up at the top of the mountain. But the water doesn't go evenly on all sides going down the mountain. It finds certain paths. So, you know, it might be out of 360 degree possibilities, it might be five places where the water actually goes down. And so my sense is that our interaction with experience and what our brain makes of what's happening to us, because it's all brand new, but my sense is that you get a hold of some certain basic experiences when you're little. Then you keep using new experience to actually build what what's right at the center. And I think that actually happens before we're conscious. Six or seven is usually when they say that a child can kind of do two things. One is they see themselves as really different from other people. And the other thing is they have the ability to actually reflect on the fact that they're thinking. Well, and so what's interesting about what you said is I look at creativity very much tied to that. Because when you are young and you're in school and conformity for the sake of control of the classroom, <laughs> you know, everything is very much praised, you know, and those that aren't conforming are considered problems. And I think that one of the things that enhances creativity, you know, when you talk about when you're a kid, everything's new. So it's all exciting, it's all new, you're processing new stuff all the time, but then people stop. You know, it's been five years since they read a book, they haven't been to a movie in two years, they haven't seen a play in six years, and when's the last time you went to a museum? Oh God, I don't even remember. But what I think is that you can stay vital yeah. if you constantly are creating those new dots to connect in your brain by constantly 
putting yourself in the position to have novel experiences. I think that happened when we were younger in the 60s and people started doing psychedelics and all of that. I think that was mistaken for somehow opening these new doors, the Aldous Huxley doors of perception with LSD. But in fact, what I think it is, is I think you can do that through the kinds of experiences you can try to obtain by putting yourself out there, yeah. which I think most people are very reluctant to do. Yeah. We were basically off for 10 days. We have a cottage up north, so we went up there and I got into a history book. And the Second World War is my favorite area of history because I was born during it. And this actually corresponded to the history that this book called Twilight of the Gods by a tremendous writer. He's a naval historian, but he's just writing about from June, July of 44. So I was born in May of 44 to the peace agreement on the battleship Missouri. He was just talking about exciting wouldn't really, really do justice to what the experience of these 18 to 25-year-olds were experiencing, 18 to 30-year-old probably experiencing. It was like the clash of the cosmic gods. I mean, the forces that were clashing with each other. And as an individual, you had no importance whatsoever. I mean, you had no importance, but you were part of something where you were operating at a very, very heightened level of awareness, either fear or excitement. It could be just awful or it could be just amazingly uplifting what they were doing. And then it ended. It just ended. You know, some of them had been at it for three or four years. You know, they had been in action, but they were still in their 20s. Okay. And some of them had gotten married at the last moment, the last month before they went off. And they had been writing back and forth. In some cases, children had been born when they were away. And they were talking about what the great wish was on the part of that generation. And the great wish was normal. I just want normal. I just want to get back. I want to have a normal job. I want to live in a normal house. And I want to live a normal life. And the 60s generation was born to the generation that just wanted normal. Even the civilian population that didn't go to war, you know, they had gone through the Great Depression and they were, you know, going through the Second World War. And all they wanted was normal. And then the biggest generation in the history of the world, still, that's the biggest generation ever created. Certainly in the Western world, biggest generation. So they're born into it and they have to compete for everything. So you were born in the competitive generation. I was born before you. I was born into the abundance world. You know, you got to school and there was more than enough teachers. There was more than enough supplies. There was more than enough time. You could get special treatment. And when you got into the job market, there were more jobs than there were to fill, you know. Four years later, it wasn't true at all. It was just huge competition. And I think the 60s, what you had combining was kids who had really, really grown up being told, don't fight normal. Normal's good. Normal's great. Normal is really great. But they were the most competitive generation ever just because of numbers. They were competing for attention. They were competing for resources. They were competing for opportunities. 
And that's the sheer difference between when I was born and when you were born, like four years later, five years later. Yeah, it's fascinating. And because I also think that what our parents grew up with was oftentimes, you know, my parents were different because they were entrepreneurs, but that a job could be a career and that you had the stability that you could have that job for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And that's gone. That's been gone now for a number of years. And it's a whole different way of looking at how one's life unfolds. Mm-hmm. Because now, you know, where it used to be considered bad on a resume to see that a person had worked eight different places in 15 years, now it's pretty common. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes, you know, why do people shift? Because it's very costly to a company to bring somebody into their culture and know that they can perform. Mm-hmm. It behooves them to maintain, you know, good employees because the cost of replacing a good employee is really high for the first couple of years. Well, that's one and a half salary generally. Right. And you get them trained and then they're gone again. Yeah. But it's a whole different way that our society is forming where there is a greater breadth of different experiences and where that used to be looked at as bad. Now it's looked at as broadening and it's probably somewhere in the middle. But let's just play back what you were talking about at 10 years old. What year were you born in? 49. 49. Okay, so at 10, you were 59. It was 1959. But wasn't the path that you were staking out for yourself and exploring and pushing forward on unique among the kids that you grew up in, you know, in grade school? Yeah, pretty much, yes. You know, there were other kids in the neighborhood that we would like shovel driveways together in the winter. So me and Jimmy Zipper, when it snowed, that was a great opportunity because we didn't have to go to school and we could go door to door and shovel driveways. And, you know, at a young age, yeah, get some cash, you know, you end up at the end of the day with 50 bucks each. That was big. You know, that was very big. But in terms of the kind of setting up a business, one could argue that that's a business mowing lawns, which I did, having a paper route that I did. Probably having a paper route was the most different in the sense that I was buying wholesale, if you will, and selling papers retail. I did it for two years. It shocked me. I had to pay for my first set of 70 papers. Yeah. I had to pay for it. So you couldn't be hired unless you had the cash to buy. Well, it'd be the first week and then You were hired basically on a weekly basis. I mean, and you were the entrepreneur because it was your cash flow that paid for the next week. Yeah, and you had to buy goods, deliver them, collect the money. Yeah, I mean, it was actually a real business when you think about it. In looking back, I didn't think of it that way then. But looking back, that was quite formative because there were people that wouldn't pay. And it was rain or shine. That's right. That's right. And at a particular time every day. Yeah. So, you know, people counted on getting their newspaper delivered before they got home for dinner. Yeah. And then Sunday, early Sunday morning, (laughs) you know, that was the shift. So go back to my freedom thesis here. What were you doing with the theater and what were you doing with any job that you could do that generated cash? What were you doing from the standpoint of freedom? I think it was the ability to, first of all, do things that I liked doing. So when I started the theater in the basement, 
you know, I like doing it. I liked mixing the audio tracks. I liked selecting the films. I liked designing the posters. I liked all that stuff. So getting paid gave me the ability to continue doing what I liked doing. Mm-hmm. When I got different kinds of jobs, like being a shoe salesman and doing door-to-door sales, which was another amazing learning experience, which I'm sure doesn't even happen anymore. I don't know if you know this, or I may have mentioned it to you in our many conversations that I was a Fuller Brush man and set a sales record for Fuller Brush. But the money allowed me basically to do what I wanted. It wasn't like I wanted to buy a car. I just wanted to be able to do stuff I wanted to do. Well, essentially, you wanted to buy your time. Yeah, yeah. You know, you quote me earlier in the book, The Four Freedoms. And my sense is that the first thing is that when you start first grade, your time is taken away from you. One to six, things are pretty good. You know, one to six. (laughs) The only problem is you don't have a conscious enough brain to actually know what a good deal you have. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yes, youth is wasted on the young, as they say. (laughs) Yeah, and then they stick you in a room, they stick you in a desk, and you're factoryized. Basically, it's, you know, what the educational system, the public educational system was, is to actually habituate children early to the kind of repetitive work that they were going to have to do later. Absolutely. Yeah. In Mrs. Kennedy's third grade class, I would usually finish the math quizzes first. So she would say to me, Jeff, you can take the erasers and go clean them. So get me out of the classroom, right? And there was like this... Freedom. Yeah, but there was this vacuum thing that you would put the erasers, you know, the chalk erasers on. You remember they were like felt rectangles and you put it over this vacuum to suck all the chalk out of it and you'd cough and, you know, it was not a pleasant experience. The second time I did this, I came back to the classroom and I said, Mrs. Kennedy, do you have a question? She said, what's that? I said, you know, I'm finishing first. You're giving me this as a reward for finishing, I get to go out of the classroom, but it seems like a punishment. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't any fun. I'm breathing in chalk and getting it all over my clothes and the vacuum is really loud. Is this a punishment? Because it makes me not want to finish first anymore. (laughs) If that's the reward, I don't want to do that. (laughs) You know? So I think that what came to me is I had to define what a reward was for me. She may have thought that was a reward for me. That seemed like punishment. You're giving me more work and the work's unpleasant. So what's my incentive to do what I was doing efficiently and quickly? You're killing that incentive. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about the comparison? You know, this would be 1950s that you're talking about. Yeah. And today, that someone like you is a potential danger in the classroom. Yes, I was. My teachers either really liked me or really disliked me. And the reason is they're geared to handle quantity. They're not geared to handle quality. Well, it's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) It's a nice way of putting me. I mean, they're graded as teachers on uh, how they handle the quantity, how they move most of the students forward. I had basically all nuns for 12 years. They worked really hard. I mean, they were very dedicated. I mean, I don't have any bad thoughts at all about the system I went through, you know, almost all the fundamental skills that make me a good entrepreneur, I learned in the first three or four years, reading, writing, arithmetic, 
I mean, if you can read, you can write, and you can basically talk, and you know arithmetic, you're on your way to being an entrepreneur. You get the basic training. That's right. Yeah, and it was good training. And the thing that I'd like to say about this, but you weren't normal. And what are you going to do with that? See, here's the big question. You know, our brains are not fully formed until about 24. They're finding more and more that even 20-year-olds, they're still childlike. You know, I mean, from a brain function, they don't have the emotions and the rational skills integrated yet until about 24. But you're talking much younger. You're talking, you know, 10, 11, like that. And what do you do with the fact that you're not normal? I don't mean you're weird. I don't mean you're a stranger or anything else. But not once in the conversation so far, if you mentioned how you hung out with all these other kids and you went and socialized, you haven't said anything about other kids here except finding somebody to work with when you're clearing snow. Well, in fact, I had a lot of friends. And as you met when you came into New York for the play, some of those friends that I've known since I was a little kid came in for that. And I've been fortunate that I have maintained my close friendships for a lifetime. And I have many friends from back when I was a little kid because it goes back to also the pleasure principle, which is we laugh together, we play together. And I place a very, very high value on that. But I never thought of myself, you know, well, I guess let me ask you a question first before I even say that is, how are you defining normal? Well, you don't fall in. There's like a group behavior imperative. You know, this is how you're supposed to act, whether it's creating the movie theater in your basement, whether it's cutting lawns, whether it's doing the paper route. Were the other kids doing that sort of thing? Then was that kind of normal? Yeah. I mean, there were some. Yes. Yeah. But the friends you have today who have stayed with you for 50, 60 years, were they also kind of not normal? You know, I don't know. There are some that started their own businesses. There are some that worked in large companies and did very well. It's kind of a range. Yeah. You know, I can't say that I have one kind of friend, mm-hmm. but the unifying thread through all of it is the importance of those bonds and those friendships mm-hmm. and that we can laugh together and talk together and nothing is out of bounds. Yeah. And To me, I think that that's the true currency in life. I mean, when you and I started talking and becoming friends, Joe Polish will always preface it. I don't know, Dan and Jeff are so different, yet they really enjoy each other tremendously, (laughs) you know, which is certainly true for me Mm -hmm. about you. How would you define that value among the people that you know? Because it's not like I can't categorize my friends as saying that they're all driven or they're all entrepreneurs or they're all this. It's a whole mosaic. Yeah, well, I have no one from the old days. All my friendships are entrepreneurs, you know, with the exception of perhaps spouses of my friends where you hang out with them. And it was funny, just to give you a difference, so you were talking about the 50th high school reunion. I went back for my 25th. I haven't been to one since my 25th. And I remember because I had the company then and I was telling my team, I'm going back for my 25th high school reunion. So they were very, very interesting because I hadn't really talked much about 
that. And here I was going back. So two things about it. First of all, when I came back, they said, how was it? And I said, well, nobody came. And they said, what? Nobody came? No. Oh, no, they sent a bunch of old people in their place. <laughs> they were already old, like they were 40, you know, early 40s, 43. And they were old. They were talking about retirement. The years were weighing very heavily on them. Mm-hmm. They didn't have many years as far as I was concerned. So I'll tell you that. But while we were there, Babs came with me. It's the only time Babs has ever met this particular group of people. And she was really tired. And so she went up to bed. So a dozen or so, they were sitting there. And what they were bringing up were scandals that had happened, usually of a sexual nature, which had happened. Usually it involved a coach or an organist. You know, usually that was the... Thing and they were talking about all these scandals. I was sitting there dumbfounded, you know, easily everybody in the room I had spent 12 years with from first grade to 12th grade, okay? And usually in the same room, you know, usually in the same room, certainly in the same building. And I was sitting there and not a thing that they were talking about did I have any knowledge of. They were talking this and they were laughing and everybody's going laughing. And I was just sitting there. So I said, you know, it's really weird. I didn't know about any of this stuff. And there was a woman who I never really knew, but you know, she was friendly and everything else. She turned to me and she says, Dan, do you know what the message was about Dan when you were going through school? Dan's just waiting for the next bus to leave town. We've only had them every 10 years, reunions. When they did the 50th, I was asked to give the class talk. And I didn't want to get into politics. I didn't want to get into religion. I didn't want to get into anything like that. I wanted to get into the things that bonded us together and the common experiences that we had had. And I sent out these questionnaires, which I got, you know, a surprising number of responses to. So I asked about 25 questions. Some people wrote a sentence. Some people really wrote like an essay. And it was fascinating to be at that crossroads where all these things came in. And then I wanted to weave this tapestry of who we were and who we are. And there were many people, that was the first reunion 50 years later. That was the first reunion they ever went to. And there was damage that had been done to them 50 years ago. They still carried with them. But at this point, everybody was coming back to not only sort of check everybody else out, like I remember at our 20th, especially at our 10th, people were like in the brag mode of, you know, what they were doing and all those who could brag. By the 50th, everybody was there to have a common experience Mm -hmm. because like you, most of us had gone from kindergarten through high school with a significant portion of the people there. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting. It was really interesting because... Back to your earlier point, I think that we carry things with us, try to prove things to people, all of these things. And that starts really young. And most of us don't shed that. There's a kind of, if you will, PTSD because the traumatic experiences stay with us. Mm -hmm. So one of the people that wrote back says, I'm not coming to the reunion. I had a horrible time in high school. I have no desire to see any of those people ever again. But they responded. 
they responded. And, you know, no, I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And Margaret, my wife said, wow, he's waited 50 years to say that to somebody. (laughs) Right. You know, well, he didn't come, but I wrote back to him when I got his thing and I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. You were clearly very hurt by your experiences. And I just want you to know that you're not alone in that. And then he wrote back and said, you know, I might have reacted a little strongly. I mean, thank you for writing back. Anyhow, we've become friendly. (laughs) Haven't seen each other, still haven't seen each other since high school, but he's a writer. I get a long email from him. He sent me three of his manuscripts and he's made a living as a writer, which is what he wanted to do since high school. You know, it's really fascinating. And so on one hand, I'm really interested in what is it that bonds us? Mm-hmm. And the flip side of that is when we've become so divided, and I'm not talking about, po- I mean, the politics manifests that division, yeah. but what I'm talking about is as people, what are those things that bond us? What are those experiences that we all have, travails that we have? You know, because what was that? Three years ago was my 50th. It'll be four years this summer. So it wasn't 70 yet. I was, I guess, 68 at that time. And I was just, you know, thinking about what are these experiences that were so fundamental and formative as to who we are and who we've come and what was that journey? Mm-hmm. What impacted us? Yeah. And there were people, by the way, that said, I used to be very liberal. I've become very conservative and the opposite. And I don't know. It was, I guess what it is, Dan, is I find people endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is a common ground for us. I treat everybody as a unique one-off. Mm-hmm. They may not even see it, but I see it. In other words, that right. I tell people, you know, the our team members, and we have a lot of longtime team members. We have our first 30-year team members this summer, two of them. They've been with us for 30 years. So we started the company 89, and these two team members have been with us since 91. We had people before, but they're not with us anymore. You know, the fundamental concept with strategic coach, I mean, if you dig down into the sub-basements and you find the stone that holds <laughs> where everything else emanates out from, it's really the concept of unique ability and unique ability teamwork. And I said, you know, strategic coach is either the easiest place to work or it's going to be the hardest place you've ever encountered to work because there's only two things that we're looking at, and that is what are you uniquely good And do you take it seriously? Number two, can you take your uniqueness and team up with other people's uniqueness to produce a much bigger result? And I said, if the constant problem is that we take your unique ability more seriously than you, you're not going to last long here. So you're getting into the area you had hinted at earlier, which is collaboration. Mm -hmm. But I want to mention one other thing, because I think it ties into this. So there was... uh, friend that I saw actually at the 40th. We hadn't seen each other for probably 35 years at least. And he had never gone to a reunion before the 40th. We were best friends all through elementary school. And we saw each other and just hugged each other. Didn't even say anything. We just embraced each other. So he said, you're going to be in town any longer? And I said, yeah. And he said, 
how about let's have lunch tomorrow? And we did. And we talked. You know, he said, you know, you might have noticed that I kind of receded into the background in high school. And, you know, although we were still friendly, we didn't hang out anymore or anything. Anyhow, he told me what was going on in his life. I had no idea. And it bubbled up all these feelings, not only this empathy for him and the incredible struggles that he had, which I had no idea about, but it made me think about what so many other people have gone through Mm -hmm. that I also had no idea about, but then you judge them on that face that they put forward at that time. Mm -hmm. And not only was it still a formative time, but you don't know what people's lives are. You know, you don't really understand that. And that really hit me. I think that I gained some wisdom (laughs) as a result of just having that afternoon lunch and realizing how little I knew about what had happened Mm -hmm. to him. Yeah. And, you know, pick your person. It's the same story. Because you don't get the age we are without scars. Yeah. Stuff happens. Yeah. Things impact us. And I think oftentimes we're way too quick to judge when we don't really know what's going on. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want to get out of the way of unpleasant people, <laughs> you know, and minimize that contact. But you're right. It's like pick anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them aren't conscious enough to actually reflect on what they've done. Right. No, yeah. That's right. So, you know, with the best will in the world, it doesn't go anywhere because they just don't have the ability to converse about that. Yeah. You know, I don't think our childhoods could have been more radically different. And I'll tell you why, because I'm the fifth child in a family of seven. And I'm the fifth child, and both my parents are fifth children. My mother is fifth of seven, and my father is fifth of nine. Mm-hmm. And in terms of my relationship with my parents, I had just the happiest, easiest childhood I've ever heard about. There were just no clashes. First of all, they were really busy. You know, they were mostly really busy all the time, you know, and it was a farm. And then the farm failed when I was 11. You know, my father really wasn't a good businessman in that sense. A farm's a very complex, it's a very, very complex operation. And there's so many ways that things can go bad with farm. A half hour hailstorm at a certain time of the year can just wipe out your cash flow for that year can destroy your greenhouses. There was partially that, and it wasn't up for him, but he was a phenomenal salesperson. That's the one thing I noticed right off the bat, is that he was just incredibly likable. Neither of them, my parents, had a mean bone in their body. They were just really, really positive people. They ended up being friends after they had been married for about 53 years. They contended a lot. But I never saw them mean. There was no meanness about it. They both had tempers. I could tell there was lots of pressures. So I've got a big gap between the first four and me. There's a big gap. It's about six years. Okay. So, I I mean, I would observe them, you know, but they were bigger shapes that kind of wandered around. And what I noticed is that they argued a lot and fought a lot with my parents. All of them, they fought with my parents. And I figured out early, well, that's not a route that you really want to go. So I did just the opposite. I was really useful. I was the useful kid in the family. And then I have two more, seven and eight years younger. 
seven and eight years younger. So there's three families. I never played with another child until I was in first grade. I never played with any kids. There were no kids in the neighborhood. There were no kids you could play with. And we were out in the country. So right off the bat, by the time I'd hit first grade, I'd figured out adults, how you can have relationships with adults. And adults had one thing the kids didn't have. They had experiences and you could pick them dry. I could keep an adult going for two hours. You know, when you were my age, what did life look like to you? You know, you talked to a 50-year-old and they were 43 years older. They were born in, you know, my parents were so 43. I was born in 44, so they were born in 1901 and it was 1908. So what life looked like in 1908? And then my mother really encouraged reading. She was a part-time teacher, but she didn't teach me how to read. I didn't read until first grade. But I really fell in love with the Encyclopedia, the Britannica. We had a fairly good Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, I would hear about somebody's experiences, then I'd pull out the Encyclopedia, and then I'd read the history of what they were talking about. You know, they were born when Roosevelt had been president of Theodore, and then I read about Theodore, and then I, you know, read about the First World War. So I kept having these conversations with adults, and they would direct me to backup knowledge I could learn about. I didn't think about it till much later. There's probably nothing more charming to adults than a child who just asks you about your experiences and sits and listens to your experiences. You're right. And part of the reason is you've never told your experiences this way to anyone. Right. I think you're right. And there's no danger in telling a child about your experiences. No, I think you're right. Long before you were a coach, you were still strategic. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a Mrs. Wetzel who lived next door, and she was, when I was seven, she was 78. So she had been born in the 1880s. I would just go over next door. We got our milk from them. We were a produce farm. So I would go over and I would pick up a bottle of milk, you know, bring it home. But I would go over and she'd have cookies and milk for me. And I'd sit and talk to her. And I said, well, you know, What's it like growing up on a farm where you don't have any electricity, you don't have any tractors, you know, you don't have radio, you don't have telephone and everything else that she told me. And, you know, it was a very full life. I mean, when something hasn't been created yet, you don't miss it. Right. That's right. Well, so <laughs> you're touching on something else that I think we share, which is insatiable curiosity. Mm -hmm. And it can be about anything. Yeah. You know. Anything and everything. There you go. <laughs> but, you know, there were always older people in my life. There was a man named Mr. Castanero. And I went with my dad's best friend, Dr. Palchik, who was a very eccentric guy. And he was an extraordinary dentist. And the reason I say extraordinary dentist is in the four dentists I've been to since that's when I knew I was becoming an adult, you know, when I was paying my own dental bills. <laughs> and then at a certain point, I was older than my dentist, you know, so that was weird. <laughs> that was weird too. But without fail, the dentists I've had since him were, who did your dental work? You know, because he was just that good. And he pioneered some practices and so on, but he was a very eccentric guy. So he would pull into our driveway, flash the lights, and this could be at one in the morning, and he'd flash the lights, 
then my dad would go downstairs and it would wake me up and I'd go down and, you know, and it was like they were just friends and I was like friends with them, so to speak. Anyhow, Patrick was getting his stereo fixed. And then he took it to Mr. Castaneros. He said, you want to come with me? And I went with him. This guy's garage was all filled with electrical equipment and his basement was just this maze of stuff and electronics from the 20s and the 30s and 40s and then contemporary stuff and contemporary then was middle 60s, but amazing. Well, I became friends with Mr. Castanero, and so I'd ride my bike over there and assist him in fixing things, and he would tell me stories about what he did. And not unlike you, you know, I'd ask him questions about, wow, so when things went from tubes to transistor, you know, did you have to relearn how to fix everything and, you know, all of that. And it was really some of those older friendships that I had were so formative and meaningful to me because they had a vast life experience like the dairy farmer near you that you didn't have. And so it was all new. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier today is other dots are forming and new constellations of ideas can form the more stuff you hear about. So I think if you stay mentally stimulated yeah. and stay curious, there's a lot good that can happen. Well, it brings up then probably a topic for our next session, which is you have sort of this internal universe that you've created in childhood and teenage years, and it fascinates you. But you hear reports from what life is like when you go out into the workplace, and you can't get paid for any of that stuff. You can't get paid for being curious in the way that you want to be curious. Right. Again, I'm voting strongly, just having kind of specialized in one kind of character for close to 50 years, which are entrepreneurs, especially ambitious, creative, and cooperative entrepreneurs. Those are my three qualities that I'm looking for. I think that the die is set at a very, very early age for demanding a certain kind of freedom to think about things and talk about things in the way you want to talk. And I think it drives you towards an unusual and not normal way of earning a living when you are out in the marketplace. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.